Hello, what's going on, listeners? This is episode 16 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. We're closing off this month's theme of foundational science with stem cell biologist and professor of molecular genetics at the University of Toronto, Dr. Derek Vandercoy. Now, I don't think I've ever met another scientist that exudes as much passion as Derek when talking about science. And for someone who's dove deeply into many topics, it's incredible how productive he's been. It says a lot about his work ethic and the team he's built around him. All good reasons for having him on your thesis committee if he's already not your supervisor, especially if you want to make sure your hypotheses and research questions are sound. I'm speaking from experience here, and believe me, Derek has been an indispensable resource on my committee. In our conversation, we talk about where brains come from, what worms can teach us about learning and memory, and the promise of regenerative medicine for curing blindness. Derek also tells us how his interests in motivation and reward have evolved over time to include basic neuroanatomy, and this cross-pollination continues to be reinforced in his lab today. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did, and don't forget to let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. On that note, a big shout out to IMS Magazine and everyone at the IMS office for the continuous support and love. You know what to do. Enjoy the show. I can't imagine that you ever get tired of this, Steve. This is my second time being in your office. It's and been sunny both days. Right? Oh, it has been, right? So we don't see the cloudy days. But uh, we were talking amongst ourselves and we were just saying that, you know, if you ever wanted to consider putting this up on Airbnb, you know, if the grant fund funding oh, is ever tighter, you could totally make a couple extra bucks just with the space alone. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, the, the, the cloudy, stormy days are actually really neat because if there's lightning and stuff, you get the whole... Uh, oh, wow, that's the whole right. effect here, right? right. You see it bouncing off the CN Tower once we saw it. Oh, that's so, so yeah. neat. How late have you stayed here? Have you seen like really nice, beautiful skies? Yeah, so at night it's pretty good, so you can see the whole uh, the whole uh, city lit up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's actually good. And yeah. The only time it's bad is in the early morning when the sun pours in after all the grapes down. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you ever consider putting it up on me, that would be your first question. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> you should do our day, shows right? out of this office, yeah. Perfect, yeah. So, so we caught up with you uh, a couple weeks ago, and you told us about some of the things that are going on in your lab, and it was really hard to classify your field of research because it seems like to say that you dabble is an understatement um, because you, you're into... You mean, you mean delve deeply into multiple Absolutely. fields? That's what I meant by exactly, right? Um, so you're into developmental biology, neuroanatomy, regenerative medicine, uh, behavioral science. Could you run us through some of the current projects that are going on right now and what are some of the main questions? What do you hope to get out of them? Sure. So I guess uh, the, we're doing a couple of model organism experiments. I can go from model organisms up to human, I guess. And uh, we're looking at in C. elegans, which is a small uh, nematode worm that uh, is the best understood, excuse me, multicellular organism. So its body is a thousand cells. Its nervous system is 302 neurons. And they know every synaptic connection between every neuron. So uh, when they first hired a C. elegans person at U of T, Many years ago, I was thinking, I mean, I heard him give some talks. I thought this is a fantastic system for doing science. And so because you can see every single cell, all 302 neurons, Mm -hmm. you can laser ablate individual cells and then study the animal with one neuron gone. Uh, Or you can, uh, there are genetic mutations available in many of the genes in the worm and they're frozen down. You just write to the C. elegans Genetic Center Consortium and they'll send you the frozen worm, you thaw them up and you test them. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic, right? So we thought maybe we could use uh, worms for studying uh, questions in psychology. So I, my background is psychology and I'm still interested in questions of learning and memory and motivation. And so we thought, is, is the C. elegans a, a good model for looking at learning and memory manipulations? And so we started doing genetic screens where we mutate randomly genes in the worm and ask, are there examples where they can't learn? And uh, we used a really simple assay, so worms don't have eyes or ears. The way they get around in the world is by smell, taste, and touch. <laughs> and we picked smells because smells are the best understood uh, sensory system in worms. And worms eat uh, bacteria, so you de- E. coli is their food, and their entire life they're eating, their mouths are open. So if you take food away, they really pay attention. <laughs> and so our assay is... They never forget. They don't <laughs> forget. They never forget, yes, and that's, that was really useful. So we, we take a smell called benzaldehyde that smells to us like almonds, and the worms really like it. So if you put a little point source of benzaldehyde on one side of the plate, the worms on the other, they'll swim up the gradient and sit over the highest concentration because mm-hmm. they really like it. And so uh, our experiment is to take benzaldehyde, put it on the roof of a petri dish, 
and then take the worms off food so they don't have food and stick them in the petri dish with the smell of benzaldehyde on the roof for an hour. And so this is the first time they've ever been without food, and it's correlated 100% with the smell of benzaldehyde. Mm-hmm. So then when we test the animal after that training, rather than approaching the benzaldehyde, they all run away. Right. And they remember this for three or four hours. Uh, so it gives us a really, I think, rigorous uh, and simple assay for learning the memory of worms. And then what we've been doing is screening uh, with mutations, random mutations, to see if uh, we can find mutations to disrupt learning and memory. And actually, this is what I talked about this morning in the Breakfast Club. One mm-hmm. of the things is if you do a saturation screen, so you continue to mutate genes in the worm until you start getting the same mutations that block learning and coming up again and again, then you sort of know that you've done an exhaustion of all the genes that are important for learning the memory, at least that are viable. Right. Right. And so once you've done that, then the way those genes act actually can describe the structure of learning and memory. So you know, three of the genes that we've looked at block associative learning, where you have to learn the relationship between two cues, but not non-associative learning, where you just give the same cue repeatedly and the animal habituates to it. And so uh, it's clear that one of the fundamental building blocks of behavioral plasticity is mm-hmm. a separation between uh, non-associative learning and associative learning. Right. Other things we found are genes that are important not for actually associating the two stimuli, but for retrieving them from memory. And I mentioned, I think, before when we talked that uh, the insulin gene is one of the really interesting ones because uh, insulin essentially is used as a neurotransmitter before it's ever used as a hormone in evolution. And so animals like jellyfish use insulin as a transmitter, don't even have a pancreas, right? Worms use uh, insulin as a neurotransmitter in a small proportion of all their neurons in the brain. Mm -hmm. And if you wipe out uh, insulin, what happens is the animals have absolutely no memory in that benzaldehyde starvation assay. So right. they, they, they seem to sense benzaldehyde okay, uh, they sense starvation, but they can't make the association, can't store it in memory, or can't retrieve it. And so we're actually able to ask which of those three possibilities is the reason why insulin mutant worms can't learn because they can't make the association, they can't store it in memory, they can't retrieve it. And we've lucked out because there was a temperature-sensitive mutation of the insulin receptor itself available. And what that means is that room temperature of the insulin receptor works fine, but if you turn the temperature up a few degrees, it takes on the insulin receptor takes on a confirmation that can't signal anymore. Interesting. And so this allows you to turn insulin signaling on and off anytime you want. So we did that experiment. We turned insulin signaling off either during the training of the benzaldehyde starvation association, between training and testing during memory consolidation, or during testing. And it turns out insulin is primarily necessary during testing. And we actually think it's part of a memory retrieval mechanism. It's not important for making the initial association, Mm -hmm. storing it in memory as an engram, but extracting that memory, retrieving it from the storage site, it seems to be a rule rule for insulin. And so one of the things we showed is that in the insulin mutant, we only had to replace the wild-type insulin gene in a single neuron to get full learning back. And we know that neuron, the AIA it's called, has a direct projection to another neuron that actually senses benzaldehyde. So we think we have a small circuit, not only makes the association between benzaldehyde and starvation, but stores it, and we think we know which neuron stores it, and then retrieves it from this other neuron, AIA, from the storage site, which is in the primary sensor neuron. So these are kind of questions that are really hard to ask in any other mm-hmm. organism, right? But both the cellular and the genetic control that you have of the elements allows us to ask questions about learning and memory. Right. You know, the long-term goal is to ask, are some of the genes that we find are important in building learning and building memories in worms, are their homologs in uh, mice and humans also important in learning and memory? Is this a, an easy or a faster way to get at some neat novel genes that are part of a memory storage retrieval mechanism in humans? This is Erin. And this is Kat. And welcome to another Flashback Friday, where we take you back in time to meet the father of modern neuroscience. Santiago Ramon y Cajal grew up dreaming of becoming an artist. However, under the influence of his father, a professor of applied anatomy, Cajal pursued the study of medicine instead. So how did this man who dreamed of becoming an artist come to be widely referred to as the father of modern neuroscience? Well, although Cajal's research career was filled with a number of important discoveries and breakthroughs, it was his neuroanatomical work and development of the Neuron Doctrine in 1887 that solidified his position at the foundation of neuroscience. The Neuron Doctrine demonstrated that the nervous system was made up of discrete nerve cells rather than a continuous cellular structure. 
This was a groundbreaking discovery, as at the time, most scientists believed that the nervous system consisted of a fused web-like structure based on the observations of a German histologist, Joseph Gerlach. It was not until 1871 when Camillo Golgi, who came to share the 1906 Nobel Prize with Cajal, discovered a chemical reaction that allowed him to stain only specific parts of neural tissue samples, namely the cell bodies and their projections. Although this new stain allowed Golgi to see the lack of fusion between different neural cells, he did not reject the belief of a fused nervous system. And it was only 14 years after Golgi's discovery that Cajal came across Golgi's stain and used it to concretely demonstrate that the individual cell bodies did not in fact form a single fused network. And his childhood passion for art remained strong in adulthood, as is evidenced by his incredibly detailed sketches of what he saw under the microscope. Cajal's drawings remain some of the most detailed and intricate representations of the diverse structure of the nervous system, and his sketches are used for reference by scientists and students to this day. If you'd like to check out some of his work, head over to our Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. And this was Flashback Friday with Kat and Aaron. Now back to the podcast. I remember I did one, uh, one topic they called type 3 diabetes Alzheimer's because they're central insulin resistance. So Alzheimer's being associated with yeah. losing learning. Yeah, so, so, it's, it's, so it's actually interesting because insulin is expressed in many, in the brains of many model organisms, but in the adult rodent or human, it doesn't look like insulin is expressed from neurons in the brain. It right. gets to the brain from the pancreas. But it, it, and there is some evidence that insulin is expressed in the embryonic brain from brain cells. But in the adult, apparently all the insulin is coming from the pancreas, not mm -hmm. from the neurons. So there's, there's been this weird... If you look across organisms, some animals use insulin both as a hormone in the pancreas, as a neurotransmitter, and as a neurotransmitter. Some only use it as a neurotransmitter, like jellyfish, and uh, some seem to use it only as a, like humans, only as a, or rodents, as a pancreatic hormone, not as a neurotransmitter. So, uh, divergence between different species has caused either multiple or single use of insulin in different tissues. So do you think that other neurotransmitters that are maybe used in humans or other mammals are more efficient in conveying messages than insulin is? Is that why we, for example, don't use insulin for learning? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it looks like most of the transmitters that are transmitters in worms are also transmitters in humans. Uh, insulin's one of the few that isn't, but, you know, dopamine, serotonin, glutamate, GABA, acetylcholine, all the traditional ones that are present in uh, mammals are also present in worms. So insulin's one of the outliers, actually. Right. Yeah, so I guess the other sort of project that's, that comes out of our psychology background is really looking at uh, the motivational effects of drugs. And here what we're really trying to do is ask whether we can find out where opiates work in the brain to cause their rewarding and addictive effects. Um, and the reason why we picked opiates is that their receptors are extraordinarily well known. There's genetic knockout, knockout of them. There's a, a small class of opiate receptors, four primary receptors. Are those the mu receptors? Mu's are one type, yeah. And they're the primary type that seems to be important for the motivational effects. And so you know, the, the, we could have studied the motivational effects of food. In fact, we do. But it's hard to say where food acts in the brain, right? Does right. it act in the brain? It acts in the gut to release nutrients and signal to the brain. But, but how does food actually act? Whereas opiates act specifically in the brain, and we can inject them in the brain and produce strong motivational effects. Right. Uh, the animals really like injecting uh, opiates into their brains. Right? And so um, we've used opiates as a way to characterize the places in the brain where opiates work to cause the rewarding and addictive effects. And we found two separate circuits that are apparently important. One that's most important for the rewarding effects of opiates like morphine and heroin when the animals haven't experienced them before. And the second one that's more important for the rewarding effects of opiates when the animals have been chronically treated with morphine and are now in morphine withdrawal and they're taking new morphine on board in order to overcome the aversive effects of withdrawal. Right. And uh, we've, we have two separate circuits that seem to mediate these two different rewarding effects. And the surprising finding we made a few years ago was that those same two circuits underlie the rewarding effects of food. Mm -hmm. The system that's important for the naive rewarding effects of opiates when you haven't been exposed before is the same system that seems to be important for uh, eating food when you're completely full, the dessert effect. Right. So okay. if you don't need food, but if there's something really tasty there, then you'll eat it. And that, and that system seems to be the same system that's important for the naive rewarding effects of opiates. And what is that one called? Uh, so it, it, it depends on the projection from the ventral tegmental area to the brainstem tegmental pedunculopontine nucleus. The other system seems to be important 
when animals have been chronically treated with opiates from withdrawal, and they're now taking the drug to overcome the adverse effects of withdrawal. And that's the same system that seems to be important when animals are starved and they're eating food because they desperately need it or they're going to die. Right. And that system seems to involve the mesencephalic dopamine system. Uh, and so we have these two separate systems that seem to mediate the reward effects of both opiates and food. Uh, and one of the things we're most interested in is what the switch is. So how much opiates do you need before you switch from one system to the other? Right. Okay. And we, we've got a very specific hypothesis about how this happens. We think it's due to a switch in a GABA-A receptor, mm -hmm. which is normally inhibitory, to excitatory. Without a, without a change in the protein, this is a change in the chloride balance inside the cell that makes GABA now excitatory in cells rather than inhibitory. And uh, so this is a plastic switch we can throw, turn on and off. Mm -hmm. and, and, and essentially what that allows us to do now is we can make an addicted animal turn back into a non-addicted animal based on its motivational effects. Interesting. Just by blocking that switch. Yeah, so we're trying to test that idea right now. We think it's in a subpopulation of neurons in the ventral tegmental area, a small subpopulation, and some of the people in the lab right now are trying to characterize exactly where those neurons are because they could be not only clinically relevant to drug addicts, but also relevant for eating and obesity. And so uh, we think this is a project that has some good legs uh, in the long run for right. being clinically relevant, but right now we're just figuring out basic mechanisms and probes. Um, other things, we also do some developmental biology projects, and uh, we started out asking questions about uh, the developing brain and how does a cell decide to become a neuron versus a glial cell. And anytime you ask those questions, you start asking, well, where does that cell come from? Where does it come from? And you end up in stem cells. That's exactly where we ended up, right? So we're starting to look at uh, neural stem cells in the developing brain. And I mentioned the primitive and definitive neural stem cells that we've been studying. Uh, in the uh, adult brain uh, that are really important in building the brain, but then uh, in the adult uh, proliferate a little bit and provide a few new neurons in the hippocampus and also in the olfactory bulb, but in no other places in the adult brain. So they're not used normally for replacing neurons, but now that you know that there are stem cells in the brain, then the possibility opens up that we could stimulate them and get them to proliferate more and make new neurons that would potentially replace neurons that are lost due to disease or injury or whatever other reason. So I think this is the real promise of regenerative medicine. Once you've found endogenous stem cells in the, in the brain or in other tissues, then even if they're not active under normal circumstances, can you activate them with a drug or some other way to get them to uh, proliferate more and uh, produce new neurons? And one of the, most, uh, the easiest ways to activate them turns out to be running. So there's a large number of studies where people have shown that if you put a mice and rat in running wheels, you can actually increase the proliferation of cells in the hippocampus and in the subcutaneous. Oh wow! Right, and uh, more motivation to exercise. Exactly. So I always, exactly. I always feel smarter after. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. So it's not. It, 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 some people have argued those new neurons can actually help store memory, but that evidence is maybe not as strong as it might be. But it's right. an interesting idea, interesting hypothesis. Um, our little bit of expertise in uh, brain stem cells allowed us to try and look for stem cells in some other tissues. And the first obvious one was the retina, because the retina grows out of the brain uh, embryonically. It's actually neural tissue, right? It comes out the optic a cup, grows out of the brain, and then moves into the orbit, and then you've got a retina in the eye. And so uh, it turns out we found a stem cell in the adult mouse and human retina. And this is even less active in the adult than the brain stem cells are. So we think that uh, the uh, retinal stem cell in human eyes proliferates a lot in the embryo in the early postnatal period, but then once it's all the neurons in the retina are produced, that cell never proliferates again in the entire lifetime. Interesting. So uh, you know we've we've looked in kids who have died when they're six days old and eighty-year-olds, and it turns out they have about the same number of retinal stem cells, ten thousand. It's because they don't do anything between the early postnatal period and the adult, they just sit there. It's not clear why they sit there. I mean, the, the sort of explanations that people give is, well, once you've built a retina and have all the connections correct, adding new cells may not be a good idea. It may actually uh, mess things up. And the other reason is, well, I think it's true in many tissues, the reason why you want to control the proliferation of stem cells is that uh, a lot of people believe that tumors originate from the uncontrolled proliferation right. of stem cells or progenitors. And so there might be good reasons to try and control the proliferation of those cells in the animal. 
But, uh, and, and we actually, when a couple of years ago, two of the postdocs from Moravi analyzed what it was in vivo that prevented the retinal stem cells in the adult from proliferating, because we know they proliferate in the embryo. We know if you take the retinal stem cells out in a dish from an adult motion or adult human and put them in a single cell in a dish, they'll proliferate without any growth factors. And this was really neat because, you know, they don't need any positive signals. They seem to just, their proliferation is suppressed by, by other signals inside the body. And uh, uh, Vince Tropepi, when he was a PhD student in our lab, uh, actually found that one of the reasons why a single adult retinal stem cell can proliferate by itself in a dish is that it makes its own FGF, fibroblast growth factor, that acts in an autocrine manner back in itself. And so it'll produce its own factor that causes it to proliferate. If you sop up all the FGF from the culture by giving an antibody to FGF with blocks function, this all just sits there. So they don't need external factors to proliferate. What that hinted at is there are, there's other tissues in the eye that are suppressing their proliferation. So uh, two postdocs, uh, Carl and Laurent, actually tried to do, put single uh, adult mouse retinal stem cells in a dish and then co-culture them with other bits of the eye and ask which bit would suppress the proliferation of the retinal stem cells. And it turns out it wasn't our original hypothesis, it was going to be the retina. And in fact, the lateral bit of the retina where the stem cells sit. Uh, but it turns out it's not the retina, it's the lens and the cornea in the front of the eye that are releasing molecules that suppress the proliferation. And we have two really great candidates for what those molecules are, uh, the bone morphogenic proteins and another protein called serum frizzle-related protein, which is a wind protein. Um, and those two proteins seem to be released by lens and cornea and suppress the proliferation of uh, retinal stem cells. And we know that, or we have evidence that that's true because if we put blockers of those two proteins within with the lens and cornea, then even in the presence of lens and cornea, the retinal stem cells uh, proliferate like crazy. So we think wow. we've done a pretty reasonable job of identifying what those inhibitory proteins are. And Ken, one of the current graduate students, is trying to take those two blocker, uh, blockers of those two systems, of those two molecules, inject those blockers into the adult eye. And what he can show is he can activate the stem cells in the adult eye. And this opens up the possibility of again endogenous repair. If you can get the stem cells proliferating again, will, can they make some of the, the cells that are necessary are lost in blind people and replace them endogenously? Right. I think in the in the short term, what we'll be doing is doing transplants of cells that we make in culture from stem cells. But in the longer term, once you know that endogenous stem cells are there, then you really want to see if you can use them and get the eye to rebuild itself from the inside rather than doing surgery right. transplants. Right. And stuff like it's really interesting because you're working on a lot, on a lot of different things and uh, your goal, your, I guess your ultimate goal is to somehow translate it into a, a treatment, something that could benefit certain patient populations. But at the same time, in doing all this research, you're essentially going back in time and you're figuring out the origins of brains, of how brains work, where they came from, and how we came to be who we are as humans, sort of higher order creatures who have this capacity for thought and complex cognitive processes. I think that's true. I think we're more interested in the basic research questions, right? How does the brain develop? Where does it come from? But out of that interest in how the brain and the eye and the pancreas grow, and out of the interest in stem cells, we've seen results that are, have obvious translational potential, and we'd be silly not to think about them. And we do. We clearly think about them all the time. But I think that what's really driving most of the people in the lab is an interest in just the basic functions of how do stem cells work? How do you how do they produce all the progeny that can build the brain or the, the eye or the uh, pancreas? So I think those questions are more interesting most people in the lab. Hi, this is Kat. This is Erin. And we're here with Samantha Yamin uh, for our Ask a Student segment. So Samantha is a student in Derek Mandicoy's lab, and we're really excited to talk to her today, um, not only about her research, but also some of her endeavors in communication and science and translating your research to more general public. So to start off, Sam, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your research and just kind of the, the elevator pitch? Yeah, sure. Hello. My name is Samantha Yamin, and I'm in the start of my fifth year of my PhD in Derek Vanderkoy's lab. Uh, our lab does a bunch of different research in the, anything pretty much related to neurobiology, but my research in particular is focused on stem cells and how different populations of stem cells build the brain early on in development and how those same types of stem cells are present in the adult brain and can be activated for repair after injury or disease. But we're really interested in understanding, you know, hierarchy of cells and 
this cell makes that, and then it makes that, and then finally it makes the cells of the brain. So that's what my project has been about. How did you decide to go into the field of neural stem cell research? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, I started in neurodegeneration, mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to study Parkinson's disease in particular because my uncle has had Parkinson's disease for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to try to figure out more about that. So in my uh, third year, I did a summer studentship in Dr. Paul Fraser's lab at the Center for Research in Neurodegenerative Disease. Um, and that was really interesting. And I continued on for a fourth year project in undergrad, studying Alzheimer's and a bit of Parkinson's on the side. And then I decided I wanted to study the opposite, neuroregeneration, <laughs> um, because it seemed a bit more hopeful. <laughs> and, um, so I became fascinated in all the, like the brain, the more you learn about the brain, the more you see how complicated it is. And mm -hmm. it, I became fascinated in how that's built and maintained. And that's what stem cells are all about. Very cool. Um, so did you go directly into a PhD in this field or did you um, do a master's or kind of how did that come about? Yeah, like many people in Canada, the more common route is to enter as a master's student. Mm -hmm. And then you can choose in your uh, second year to reclass, or I guess after the first year, you decide to reclassify to the PhD or to defend a master's mm -hmm. um, shortly after. And so I entered a master's program with the intention of doing a PhD. Uh, I got a bit of cold feet before my reclass and then decided, then remembered that no, I want to do yeah. a PhD. And I transferred into the PhD program in my second year. So how did you come about getting into Derek's lab? Yeah, um, it's a bit of a funny story there. I wasn't initially considering him because I was really intimidated by the reputation he had. Yeah. Um, in our undergraduate neuroscience courses, he was spoken of really highly, and so I just saw him as this intimidating and maybe even scary guy. And For some reason, I let that um, stop me from approaching him. And then I serendipitously got matched with him um, for an interview for another graduate department, and I was super nervous walking into the interview, thinking like, oh man, like he's probably really mean and strict, and this is gonna go horribly, I'm, I'm not prepared. Uh, anyways, I walked into his office, and right away he asked if I wanted a coffee or a tea or something, and he was super nice, and uh, we just talked about science for a full hour. I was excited by the research questions. He wasn't at all mean or scary, <laughs> and even to this day, we argue like as if he's not my supervisor, and and um, he's always really cool about it. So um, it's just kind of a lesson to take things with a grain of salt, not always listen, uh, don't get intimidated by people and don't listen when someone gives an opinion about someone because everyone's kind of different. It's wonderful, it's always fun when that happens when you yeah. meet the people behind the reputation and they're yeah. completely not what you would expect. Yeah, just as a point, like you should never, you should take what anyone else says with a grain of salt. Absolutely. Everyone yeah. likes different personalities and like he's not at all mean, just to clarify. <laughs> he's one of the nicest. I argue with him like he's not my supervisor and yeah. he's always still nice back, so <laughs> yeah. That's excellent. Um, in terms of Derek's lab, uh, in the episode he talks about uh, how there's really a really wide variety of research um, mm -hmm. that goes on in your lab and uh, there's a lot of different research questions that um, your team is trying to answer. Yes. Um, so. How has it been working in a lab like that that's so diverse? Um, and what would you say some of the pros and maybe some of the cons are of that kind of culture? Yeah, so I was excited about that part of the lab because I love almost everything about neuroscience mm -hmm. and I wanted to stay on top of different fields. And so we have people who study motivation and kind of mm -hmm. drug reward and the anatomy related to that. And I love hearing about that stuff, but mm -hmm. I just didn't want to research it per se. So I love that I still know everything that's the latest in that field mm. without actually doing it. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> that was a big plus. So you, staying diverse in the topics you get to hear about was really good, a, a big pro for me. Mm -hmm. The con is that I'm the only person in the lab right now studying neural stem cells. Mm -hmm. Most of the stem cell people in our lab are studying the stem cells of the retina. Mm -hmm. So more on a more technical standpoint, sometimes something doesn't work and you have no one else to compare with. Luckily, we have close collaborators in Cindy Morrisett's lab just mm -hmm. on the floor below us, so that hasn't affected me too much. But yeah. diversity is nice. You just have to make sure you have the support system if you're going to choose to go mm -hmm. into a lab where you're the only one studying something. Yeah. 
I think that's really great advice. Yeah. So maybe switching gears a little bit, we sure. know that you're a big advocate for um, <laughs> science communication, and yes. you have a really big social media presence. And thank we, you. Uh, we tend to We're very very big. <laughs> yes, we <laughs> thank frequent, you. That's so um, kind. Frequent your social media pages. Um, so how, we just wanted to ask you about sure. um, how this passion came about and how you initially started. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you first of all. <laughs> I'm glad that someone's reading and they like it. Um, so, I've I'm oh I've always been enthusiastic about science, and I think it's fun to share your expertise, whatever it is. If you have expertise in business or writing or art, mm -hmm. you know, share it because it's it's fun for other people to learn about. But I became more motivated to actually make something of this enthusiasm when. I started realizing that I was frustrated with the way science was funded. Mm -hmm. I think um, I study very basic biology, and I'm fortunate that the field of stem cell research is, is well-funded, but other people studying basic biology like me are not in the same a lucky position. A lot of really fundamental research is underfunded, especially if you work with a model organism. Mm -hmm. And that frustrated me. And I was, you know, first I had a chip on my shoulder, and then I thought, well, what can I do? I took a science policy course and realized that um, funding decisions are made by people who also care about what you're researching, but they have pressures from the public. Mm -hmm. And so that roundabout, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> a lot of those few yeah. made me realize, okay, well, if I want to change how they fund science, I need to change what people think of science and get people excited about the less sexy science research. Maybe it's not going to cure someone directly, but it's important. And if people um, don't see that, it's our fault for not helping them see it. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to get online. It's a, a long answer, but it's it's really because I think we need to advocate for more fundamental science that doesn't otherwise have a voice in the popular media. Do you have any advice for students who are hoping to talk more about their research or also trying to break into science communication? Mm -hmm. um, how to go about doing that or just how to be more conscious of the public's perception of your research um, in your everyday life? Yes, I will quote my best friend Michelle and um, one of my mentors, Lisa Willems from the Ontario Institute for Generative Medicine, they both gave me the same really good advice mm -hmm. and it was just do it. <laughs> um, that sounds annoying, but the tit like these days with social media, anyone, you're already on your phone. <laughs> you very can very easily, you already have all the apps to do it. It's free. Mm -hmm. All you have, you're probably already really good at using social media if you're within our age group in your 20s. Um, so just start doing it. There's nothing holding you back. You don't need a degree. I was looking into different um, writing programs I could apply for next and then mm -hmm. I just figured well why don't I just try and see how it goes and it's been going pretty good mm -hmm. and if you just find other like-minded people let's say on Twitter you can get advice from them get support and kind of build a network so that your tweets don't go get lost in in the Twitter ether mm -hmm. they'll support you they'll retweet you and eventually it'll stick so mm -hmm. just do it and let me know and I'll help you <laughs> <laughs> You're so right, That's because awesome. all these resources are already at our fingertips, and all we yeah. need to do is bridge what we're already doing with our social media in our personal lives and yeah. and bridge that gap with our more professional lives, so that's great. Yeah, it's like literally at your thumbs. <laughs> so. Very true. Do you have any idea of where maybe you would like to see your uh, science communication <laughs> efforts focus on next? Because I know you're very, very... Um, big on Instagram and Twitter, and you have a lot of mm -hmm. great um, regular series that you do and post. Thank you. Um, is there any next kind of challenge um, for PsyCon? No, or is it yeah, <laughs> under development? Um, uh, that's a tough question. I, I think I want to keep doing what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, so right now I have uh, three main things. I do um, Science Sunday, where I just talk about some random small thing in the lab that I think is cool. Mm -hmm. um, something as simple as, this is how antibodies work, so we can get pretty images. Then there's uh, Future Fridays, where I showcase the diverse faces of people in science, technology, engineering, and math. Mm -hmm. And that's just to show that scientists are relatable and that we don't all look how you might think we look. <laughs> um, just to help, because I have a lot of younger followers too, so yeah. I want them to have role models and champions. Um, and then the last one's a myth-busting series, it's hashtag science says, which I've just started recently, and that's because there's too much alternative facts. <laughs> there are too many alternative facts and pseudoscience out there, so I want to um, kind of bust some myths, but in a really approachable way, so that we're not 
just shutting people down and being condescending, but mm. just being like, hey, you might think this, that's okay. Let me tell you why you might want to think otherwise. Mm. So those, I don't want to keep focusing on those for a while and yeah. do more live videos and interactive mm. things like that. Well, it sounds great. And it sounds like you have your plate full with both research <laughs> and other SciCom <laughs> yeah. endeavors. So thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Um, it's been really wonderful talking to you and learning about everything that you do. Thank you um, so much. So this was Kat. This is Aaron. And now back to the podcast. Now, I know, I know a lot of research groups that uh, essentially work on one question. They'll put all their funding, all their time, all their resources into addressing this one question from different avenues. Mm -hmm. But you seem to be doing the opposite. I mean, obviously, everything is under the umbrella of neuroscience, mm -hmm. but you have uh, several different distinct questions that you're answering. Do you ever worry that you're spreading yourself too thin with a lot of different projects? I mean, what happens if a project doesn't materialize? Yeah, then, 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 well, the nice thing is if one project's going bad, there's all, also three other ones that are going better. So <laughs> right. You can get depressed about one, but then there's three other hopeful Follow things, right? If you, only have, if you only have one project and if it goes down, what are you left with, right? right? So, no, but I, I think that, that there's two reasons why I think it's useful. It's not that the projects are completely separate from one another. Certainly stuff that we learned uh, in studying brain stem cells was directly relevant to our ability to isolate a stem cell from the retina and from the pancreas. And so uh, those, the techniques and, and uh, expertise that we used studying those brain stem cells was very useful and was critical for, for work on retinal and pancreatic stem cells. And the other thing I think is that uh, it makes the lab a little bit more interesting. So rather than being involved in, I mean, you know what, when you learn something new, it's always more fun to learn something new than to hash over the same old questions again and again. And I think mm -hmm. that if there are a number of projects going on in the lab, it makes it interesting for the people in the lab because they can sort of get some ideas, even if they're not directly relevant to the things they're working on, well, that's an interesting way to approach that problem. Yes. Or that's an interesting technique to use. Could I apply some of that to my problem? And I think that's, that sort of cross-pollination is actually really useful. Mm -hmm. And it also makes the lab more interesting for me. Of course. <laughs> just, just to touch up on that, because quite early in your research, you were focused on the field of motivation, you know, biology of motivation. Yeah. So was there a moment or in time, or did it happen over time, that, okay, you know what, I'm interested in stem cell research too, and learning and memory as well, and finding these models to answer your specific questions? Yeah, I guess I came out of a psychology background, so I was always interested in questions of motivation and learning and memory. Uh, and my master's thesis was all about electrical self-stimulation in the brain, where animals have electrodes implanted in their brain, and they'll bar press for half-second jolts of electricity in certain parts of their brain. And uh, I don't know if they've ever seen this, but this is one of the most dramatic uh, sights in biology, to see uh, rats or mice bar pressing for uh, jolts of electricity to their brain, mm -hmm. and the animals will bar press for hours and hours on end without resting. Right. In fact, it was an experiment 30 years ago where people gave them a choice of bar pressing for brain stimulation versus bar pressing to get food and bar pressing to get water, and they found that some of the animals would starve themselves because they'd spend their entire time right. pressing the bar for brain stimulation until they were exhausted. And so, so that, and that's how it got, I mean, that interest in motivation translated into, well, where are the electrode placements in the brain that produce the best self-stimulation? And so most people have been investigating forebrain sites. And as a master's student, I went into the brainstem and asked, are there places in the brainstem where you could stimulate to produce uh, rewarding effects? And it turned out you could stimulate in the trigeminal motor nucleus. This is the motor nucleus that controls jaw movements, right? And so when you stimulate in that nucleus, the animals will make invacuole chewing movements. So even though there's no food, they're, they're chomping away. Right? And at the same time, they're bar pressing right. to stimulate their brains so that they, they're moving their mouths. And you know, if you think about it in evolutionary terms, uh, where, how does reward evolve? And one of the most important things would be to make behaviors that ensure your survival rewarding. Right. Well, chewing and eating stuff is absolutely critical for the survival of animals. Sure. So why not make it rewarding? And anything that's associated with feeding should be learned as something that's useful and rewarding. And right. So uh, that was sort of the explanation. But, but you know, when we first found this site in the trigeminal motor nucleus, I was wondering, so what specific neurons? So the motor nucleus is a big area and there's lots of other things jammed in the brainstem. And so for a PhD, one of the things they did was to apply for a scholarship in the Netherlands in, uh, in Rotterdam, uh, because the fellow there was probably the best anatomist in the world in the brainstem. So we know more about the brainstem than anybody else, and I thought, well, I'll go and I'll 
just figure out where it is that very strategic of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I thought he'll know, and I'll just it'll be easy. I'll just use his knowledge right. to figure out what's the actual substrate that's being stimulated by the electrode. Uh, and so when I arrived in the lab, uh, first thing he said to me, I, I was talking about the trigeminal motor nucleus. He said, "No, let's work on a new project." And so he said, "So we're I said, there's a great new project, great new idea. Want to look for uh, fluorescent chemicals that are transported retrogradely in neurons." And uh, I've got this cell biologic collaborator who's got this collection of every fluorescent compound that's ever been produced at that time. And so what I want you to do is inject it into the brain and find uh, any fluorescent compound that gets transported from the synaptic terminal back to the cell body. So, you know, I thought it was a pretty good project, actually, (laughs) even though it seems dull and boring. uh, I went through and I tested all of these things by injecting them into the striatum of the brain and looking back in the substantia nigra to see which fluorescent compound will be retrogradely transported back to the uh, substantia nigra. And at that time, there was really only one retrograde axonal transport, HRP, that was being used, and there was a sort of a complicated histochemical reaction to see it after it's been transported from the synapse back to the cell body. Um, so we discovered a whole bunch of different color fluorescent compounds, and, the, and they were easier to use. There was no tissue processing, you just cut the tissue and look under the microscope. The real advantage was that because we had multiple fluorescent color retrograde transporters, we could study something people hadn't discovered before, which was really how many different axon projections does a single neuron have? And so you could inject you know, in four different areas, different color tracers. And if they all ended back in the same cell body, single cell body, then you'd know that that single cell body, neuronal cell body, projected all four places. And so the, my PhD advisor, at least one of my PhD advisors, Hans Kuypers, actually said, well, so go look at the old papers by Roman Ika Hall, who was the original neuroanatomist who won the Nobel Prize for his work in 1911. And he described this uh, region in the bottom of the uh, hypothalamus called the mammary bodies. Mm-hmm. And they have all these multiple projections. And, he saw, and, and when he did his Golgi staining of individual neurons, he sometimes saw neurons that branched in multiple directions. Mm-hmm. And he said, but he couldn't really be sure how many of them were actually single neurons projecting to multiple locations. And so it seemed like a great project because he suggested that some multi-axon neurons were there. Can we actually find out where they, they transport, where they project to? And so that's the experiment we did. Uh, we injected in different places that we knew the mammary bodies projected in, and we found unusual collections of cells, some of which projected to two places, some to three, some to one, and we described where those neurons were within the mammary bodies. So it was sort of a satisfying project because it allowed us to go back to something Roland E. Hall had suggested before and actually test what is the anatomical projections, the axon projections of right. those cells. And so it was really satisfying. When we finally published a paper uh, on this work, it was in a journal called Brain Research. It used to be the place to publish all your papers, and nobody publishes there anymore. <laughs> but the, um, uh, So it, it turns out that it was published in Amsterdam. And so when we got the proofs of the paper back, they used to send the proofs in the mail. And uh, we looked at some of the color pictures of our multiple color neurons that were labeled by several different retrograde tracers. And the quality was really lousy. And so uh, Kuykers was so disgusted, he said, okay, we're going to Elsevier, which is the publisher of Amsterdam. And so we got in his car and we drove off to Amsterdam, went to the publisher, went up to the guy who who was actually making the photos and said, yeah, this is so lousy. And so he watched them and he improved the quality of the prints and and away we went. So it was a lot of fun, actually. (laughs) So it sounds like you're interest in neuroscience was sort of, it goes back and it was fostered early on and it was reinforced throughout the years as you did your research. Sure. So was it an obvious choice to come back and do a postdoc or did you ever have a moment of doubt? I guess, I mean, I did my PhD in two different places. I started in the Netherlands and then finished in Toronto. Uh, I was always interested in multiple projects. After coming back from Kuiper's lab in the, hall in the Netherlands, I was really interested in anatomy. And so I got my PhD in the anatomy department here. And, uh, but I still had those, those sort of competing interests of, you know, psychology processes and neuroscience, basic neuroscience and neuroanatomy. So as a postdoc, I uh, worked in two different places. I worked in Cambridge with uh, the Iversons, Les and Sue, who uh, were actually interested in a really broad-based neuroscience. So, so Les was a pharmacologist, a neuropharmacologist, who did a lot of uh, anatomy as well as uh, pharmacology. And Sue was more of a behavioral psychologist. And so their labs, uh, they were separate labs, but they worked in collaboration, uh, allowed me to sort of explore both neuroscience and behavior. And that really reinforced that idea. 
And the second postdoc was I did in the Salk Institute in California with Floyd Bloom, who again was one of the first neuroscientists. He had a lab where he had physiologists working beside anatomists, beside behavioral people. And this is one of the early neuroscience labs where it seems so exciting and powerful to have all of these different techniques at hand. And you could bring them together into uh, single studies to answer questions about uh, the neurochemistry, the neuroanatomy that underlie specific behaviors. And I thought it was a great, uh, a great place to do a postdoc. And I think that was really at the early stages of neuroscience when people realized that you could investigate whole organism behavior right. at a very molecular level. It was sort of before the, the, the onset of genetics. This was basically physiology and pharmacology, but genetics fit right into that mm -hmm. because once you could make mutations, targeting mutations, then it became even easier to study uh, the behavioral correlates of, uh, of gene function. So what were you like as a grad student? Were you a grinder? Would you go to the beach? So um, as, a graduate, as a graduate student, I worked pretty hard. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I was, in, I was in labs with not many people. They weren't big labs. They were small labs. In fact, I was the only graduate student in the lab in Toronto where I got my PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I worked pretty hard. As a postdoc, uh, you know, everybody worked hard, but it was also lots of fun. And so it, because both labs that I went to as postdocs were big labs, mm -hmm. they had, you know, 40 people in uh, it was fun, and uh, I learned how to surf in California. Oh, wow. At the Salk Institute. Uh, one of the guys in the lab, sort of assistant professor under this scope of this larger lab, was also the guitarist in Linda Ronstadt's band. Now, nobody knows who Linda Ronstadt was, but she's really big in the 1970s and 80s. Right? right. And he played guitar for her and then did science in the daytime. Oh, that's so interesting. And so, uh, but he was also a surfer. So he actually didn't get much work then because he was in the fun guitar, <laughs> surfing and occasionally being a lab. But right. he, yeah, always, he, always, no. he always liked to take people out surfing when they first arrived. So he took me out surfing. I was terrible, but I got a little bit better at it. So I never got any good, but yeah. I got a little bit better. So. And, and have those experiences informed your supervisory style? So how would you say, how big is your lab and, and, and how do you supervise? How do you manage the students that you do have? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, uh, there are probably 15 people in our lab. A uh, bunch of graduate students, a few postdocs, technician, and undergraduate students who work in the lab. I just mentioned I often put the undergraduate students on C. elegans worm projects because uh, they're really easy to learn. Right. Uh, so, you know, if you're doing tissue culture of mammalian cells or some behavioral experiment in mammals, these take weeks and weeks to get an answer. You can't do anything bad to a worm. You just toss them out after the experiment's over. You can learn how to do a learning experiment in a day and the next day you can get results. And so it's a great project for undergraduates. So when new people come in the lab, I'll have to put them on a worm project just to get them started and they can get results quickly. And then when people go transition from undergraduates to graduate students, I try and put each person on two projects, maybe a worm project and a stem cell project. And many of the students end up dropping one because they become more interested in one or the other. And surprisingly, right. some people who I thought would be most interested in most project end up being more focused on sale against them. So that's always encouraging. But I try and start them on two projects just to give them a broader scope of kind of things that are available. And most people, as I mentioned, uh, give up one project and focus on one. But I've had some students who have published papers on flies and worms and mouse and several different systems who have sort of kept multiple projects going. And I think it, uh, uh, they've sort of uh, really benefited from that because of the breadth. And when they start their own lab, they have the ability to work with multiple organisms right off the bat. Right. Yeah. So um, speaking of new students, when you get an email from a prospective student, whether it be an undergraduate or new graduate student looking for a research opportunity, volunteer, or a graduate position, what kind of stands out to you? What are you looking for in that first email? So, so it, things have gotten more formal and, more, and recently. So uh, one of the great things the University of Toronto has done is start uh, an ROP, Research Opportunity Program course in the second year. And so this is earlier than most universities start, I think, uh, research programs. Yes. And there's a, you know, a full year research course that you take where you work in a lab. The university organizes them for us. So essentially, we, we say what projects we have available. And in our case, it's, we put undergraduate, second undergraduate software projects. So mm -hmm. we describe the learning and memory projects. And then the students who are interested sign up for an interview. And then I interview the top ones of those and usually give them a job. It used to be I would just 
get a mass of emails from people and have to sort through myself. Right. Now, the university sorts through. It's way better. So now <laughs> through the research opportunity program. Yeah, I, I get lots of good undergraduates, right? And then there are also third and fourth year research projects, but sometimes it's the people who do second year projects will come back for right. fourth year right. project in another discipline. You need a good impression then. Yeah, or not. <laughs> or if they, they don't like it, they go another right. Lab, right? right. But it, it's actually a lot easier. I mean, I, when I started at U of T as a professor, I taught undergraduate courses. And so I would, you know, I taught one large undergraduate course that had maybe 200 or 300 people in it. And I would just pick the best student who asked the most questions and offer them summer jobs. And right. And that's nice. where I got some of the, the best students that we ever had in the lab who were undergraduates and graduate students and went on just from their undergraduate uh, courses. So I used to get them that way, but more recently, the ROP programs have been really great. So. So it's about being inquisitive. That's what. Kind yeah, of absolutely. I'm, so I'm I'm interested in people who who are asking questions and wonder how things work. And if they're keen and they seem uh, excited about the projects, then uh, I buy I buy into them. So it's you know it's been 16 years since your research group first published or first reported stem cells in the adult mammalian eye. Mm -hmm. There was and still is a great you know interest in t in this. Um, and that it would hope to cure blindness. So 16 years later, how close are you towards these therapies and applications? It's a little embarrassing because uh, when I was interviewed just after we discovered those cells, uh, uh, they asked me the same question. I said, I think we'll be treating blind people in five years. <laughs> you know better now. Given that it's 16 years later, clearly that was a lot. It's going to be colonies on the moon. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'm still saying five years. <laughs> five years from now. That's five right. Five years from now, right? So, I mean, we, we can make pure populations of human fog receptors and human RPE cells, which are the two or three of the main cell types that are missing in blind people. Uh, there are already clinical trials uh, trials going on with transports of the retinal pigment epithelial cells. Uh, we hope to be amongst the first to do a clinical trial with uh, photoreceptors to replace the photoreceptors are missing. And so, you know, we always uh, underestimate the time it's going to take to get there. Uh, but, you know, we're trying to make human photoreceptors and we're getting pretty good at it. And so, if we can get a pure population and with uh, the support of many of the Ontario uh, agencies that are interested in either moving things to the clinic or commercialization, uh, this is a project that I think has real, real strength. So uh, hopefully, I'll guess another five years and come back in 16 years, we'll see if we made progress. Well, it sounds like it's a very exciting time to be in your lab. It is, absolutely. And we Especially wish for me. Of, of course. And uh, yeah, thanks again for sitting down with us. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at rawtalkpodcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Don't get intimidated by people and don't listen when someone gives an opinion about someone because everyone's kind of different.